0: you know you get a good cold blizzard whatever is watch lonesome dove now there's six hours of the best viewing you'll ever get i can highly recommend that but um one of the great scenes in there is when gus you know he comes riding over the hill with pi and they spot a, a herd of buffalo and gus is like let's go chase those bastards and P. is like what well, what's the point of that? And Gus is like, because we can, you know, for the joy of it. P.I., he's too dimwitted to 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 try and obtain some joy out of that, so he stays sitting back on his horse, and Gus disappears over the hill chasing buffalo, and then the next scene he comes riding back helter-skelter with three arrows in his leg as he mm. ran into a bunch of Comanches. So. This is a nice segue back to episode four. <laughs> take, <laughs> take long to get back <laughs> to right. the, the buffalo. I said we were going to talk about the Lords of the Plains, but anyway, right off the bat. yeah. So here <laughs> we are. So Gus is riding hell hell for leather, you know, to get away from the Indians, and and of course this is the the start. The clock is ticking now because he's been hit in the leg with arrows, you know, which are mm-hmm. uh, broad. Broadhead arrow causes a lot of trauma and the other thing that goes with an arrow wound is is bacteria infection and then of course you know he's a matter of his struggle to to survive and he ends up in a in a hospital um after i don't know the story yeah is, yeah is yeah he
1: the same one that running with the, the water moccasins or is that a different,
0: different same character? movie
1: yeah same movie yeah. but different character
0: different character yeah yeah, Gus is the Texas Ranger, him and uh, Woodrow Cole. Yeah. They're the two that, that, you know, the movie's based on the Goodnight Loving Trail, driving te- cattle out of Texas. And But anyway, he back to the arrows in his leg. And it ends up being in this pokey dink town with a drunk doctor. And he wakes up to already one leg's gone, <laughs> you know. And because uh, that's all they knew how to do back then. Of course, he's got what they call gas gangrene. And um, which is a bacterial infection, and and uh, the only way they could stop it back then is cut your leg off or your you know amputation, and um, uh, before it kills you, right? So the clock is ticking. You only got a couple of days to live. Anyway, the famous scene is he won't let the doctor have his other leg. He says he pulls out his gun and he's going to shoot the doctor. Right? If he ta- <laughs> tries to take his other leg, he says my vanity won't allow me you know, to lose both legs, old sore bones. So, but gas gangrene, you know, it was so bad, those infections coming from the soil, the bacteria in the soil and, and, um, and contamination on clothing. Any, 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 we- any, uh, any uh, injury that would puncture through your clothing, as example, and it was dirty. And, um, and that's why in uh, the Civil War, as example, you know the American Civil War. There were six hundred and sixty thousand, you know, Union and and um, Confederate soldiers died um, in that war. You know, there's just the a huge bloodletting back in eighteen sixty-one to sixty-five, and um, and out of them, there was sixty thousand amputations. You know, mm. um, of of soldiers in the Civil War. They just, you know, stories of piling them up. Outside the uh, the operating tent that was on the battlefield, on the edge of the battlefield, and that was all they knew how to do. You know, was to try and prevent from these injuries where where they'd punctured and blasted yeah. tissue and clothing, and
1: the gas canister itself might have been more painful too than oh. the actual broad bullet coming mm. in the or wound. you know. Yeah. That's where the term
2: wound, "bite the bullet" comes from. You know that, like the bullet, you yeah, know yeah. the expression oh. to bite the bullet is going to give you something soft, i.e. a ball of lead to chew down on. Bite as hard as you can so you don't bite your tongue off while they cut your leg off. Uh, so in, start yeah. with the right leg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> tough to tell oh, them whoops. that that's the wrong leg with a big piece really, of lead in your mouth.
1: Really? That's where it comes from. Makes yeah. sense.
2: Yeah. Mm. yeah. As far as I know, I mean, it'd be also kind of impressive if I just made that up on the spot.
1: <laughs> but good. I do
2: believe that it's the expression, um, you know, like to just bear down and, take it, bite the bullet, and get it yeah. done with.
1: But even prior to that point, doesn't it... Well, it's gas gangrene, isn't it? Yeah, Kinda what is like this that you're the saying? Gas kind of snaps yeah. or crackles a little bit, and it's all underneath the... Gas gangrene is gas what you're gangrene. saying? Gas gangrene, yeah. Yeah, like the but bacterial toxin is...
0: Releases a gas and okay. it's putrefication. The stench is apparently horrendous. Yeah, you know, and then it puffs up the skin, like Tommy said, and run your hands along it and kind Ooh. of
1: feel the the pockets of gas, of move gas. along it. Yeah. Is this
2: related to
0: gangrene fever? Is that
2: is that a disease? Yeah, there's there there's what is two different
0: types of there's several types of gangrene, but it's a like a sepsis of the blood, a poisoning of the blood. Okay. You could look it up maybe what should, the actual yeah. pathogen is for
1: is it a clostridium, clostridium perfringens or whatever perfringes? i think that's what it is
0: yeah well anyway that's i think you're right but it's but
1: what's it goes septic th- yeah it, i think it's a progression it's not all not all clostridium would be that but yeah it sometimes it's enough.
0: a i think a strep form but oh, either way a it's a nightmare but um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, so we're we're talking about bacteria, you know, that they couldn't even see in the Civil War. Certainly, Gus back in Lonesome Dove didn't know what the hell bacteria was, you know, mm-hmm. and um, but and then and so when you t- and when you looked at the wars, the major wars, you know, more people died from more soldiers died from infections and disease than they did from combat wounds, you know, like it was. A lot more, a lot more, and and then as the weaponry advanced, this is the you know tremendous story that that's sort of told in the Demon Under the Microscope, mm. you know, which we recommend re- people to read, the history of um, the discovery of antibiotics, which is, but but I like this issue. I like to think about on these terms that they, <clears throat> the wounds were a lot cleaner when they were used. You know, like when. In Monty Python, when it's just a flesh wound, you know, when he cuts his leg <laughs> off with a sword, like that's a clean wound. Yeah. But you know, when they were when they were being hit by shrapnel, mm-hmm. and they were in a trench of the Somme or Verdun, when you know just millions of soldiers died in the filth and the mud and the, fe- and the fecal contamination, and um, the wounds were totally different then, and that's why you know more of them died from from uh, infections from wounds than they did from actual being killed and um as example in world war 1 there were um around 9 million soldiers died in world war 1 and more of and so and i think the combat to to um combat death to disease death was 6 to 5 so there mm-hmm. was more disease death or infections than actual then you jump to World War II, you know, when the Germans decided to give it another go. <laughs> 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 well, except they're going to do it a little bit bigger, on a bigger scale. And um, in World War II, is something like 25 million soldiers died. And of course, there's maybe 100 or 200 million civilians, you know, but just in soldiers. And then the ratio had inverted for the first time went from uh, um one for for every two combat deaths there was only one disease death, so a huge flip flop and mm. the and the and the difference in that was primarily the discovery and 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 wide use of antibiotics mm. sulfa and penicillin yeah yeah
1: it's so, uh there's i think before diving into that the, the numbers are staggering if it hadn't been um invented in time for World War II, Oh. How many would have do you, know, do you know how many would have been estimated to die? I know there's figures out there for Yeah. Because the size of that war was much greater and it yeah. might have been it might have been times two that the number that even was there. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well but, if you took the same ratio from World War One when there was that uh, six to five ratio, more disease right. infection deaths then, then the soldiers' deaths in World War Two would have went from twenty five million to like forty four and a half million.
1: Yeah, and that's not even factoring in the mm-hmm. increase in damage that the weapons do, and maybe even more. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. That's right. That's just keeping the same ratio um, ratio between. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was a, I mean, it was an absolute miracle the the advent of, of um, and the discovery of in the manufacturing, you know, that we, mm-hmm. that we've enjoyed um, of these, these miraculous compounds. Right. All that we call antimicrobials or antibiotics. And yeah, so. That'd yeah. be
1: a nice segue into today's topic if we haven't yeah. picked up on it by now. Um, I think everyone has some level of familiarity with uh, antibiotics today. Um, and, you know, for health reasons, you know, there's a lot of positive outcomes that come from that. But in general, it seems like connotation as it relates to human health and agriculture and things like that, it might get a little bit of a negative twist. And um, mm-hmm. and so I think we want to maybe try to tackle that, put some um, positive perspective as far as where the technology has come from and how, all the good that it has brought to the world. And so because um, I think people even, you know, just a couple of topics today might be people are worried about antibiotic residues ending up in their food Mm -hmm. Um, and antibiotic resistance. That is the, that's the main, the main negative outcome from overusing antibiotics is the resistance concern. And so I think that message kind of gets in the way of all of the good and all of the lives that are saved from the technology of inventing and discovering antibiotics. And so maybe we want to Jump yeah. way to the beginning of that to to walk it forward to today, but I think in general that's kind of what we hope to tackle.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we've all seen the the uh, marketing on chicken or beef. Um, there's never ever beef, you know, never treated with antibiotics. Um, what's the other portion? Oh, the never given growth promotants. But you see it in in chicken or poultry yeah. too, antibiotic free. Mm-hmm. So it's everywhere, um, and I think there's some. We could touch on this, but there's some kind of cheeky marketing around, like the chicken, for example. Am I correct that no chicken is there's there's strict rules around antibiotic use in any livestock, um, but that one in particular, right? Is there? Yeah, it's so like, well.
1: So any food that you're eating today is antibiotic free. Correct. There's. You know procedures in place and inspections. Withdrawal periods. The the FDA has withdrawal periods with antibiotics that are used in livestock, and then USDA inspects all of the meat that ends up getting sold into ends up on our plate. And so everything has been tested. So everything that we are eating, whether it was fed antibiotics to help it recover from an illness during that animal's life or not, um, technically is all antibiotic free. But it's a clever it's a clever play on the on the words. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that's good. Just to throw that out there to start that, uh, for some general perspective, that that piece that yeah. all food in our food supply is, you know, antibiotic free, thanks yeah. to those withdrawal periods and the regulations in place.
0: Do, I think, do you think everyone knows what antibiotic resistance is? No,
2: I don't even. I mean, I, I do <laughs> in a really general sense, but no. What do you think? I mean, it put me on the spot. Um, I would say it's the losing the efficacy of the antibiotics to fight what they were intended to um, combat. Is that, like, they don't work as well as they did when they first started because the um, organisms that they're targeting are adapting and becoming resistant to that antibiotic. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that correct in a nutshell?
0: Yeah, yep, yep. And I think people, a lot of people have heard, like, Jack Josie is a NICU nurse. You know she she'll be familiar That's with. That's my wife for the listeners. It's Jack's wife for the listeners, but um, <clears throat> but she'll be familiar with uh, multi-drug resistant, you know, pathogens in a hospital because hospitals are just a, they're uh, well they're the nexus point for these real nasty pathogens that have been concentrated there over you know over decades and decades. And um, so we have we have a we have we have a situation where where some bacteria infectious bacteria were easily you know killed and put under control by uh, by using penicillin for example, and um, but they've adapted resistance to it, meaning they've lost their sensitivity or they've developed um, you know mechanisms to survive uh the antibiotics so the antibiotics don't kill them anymore so this is the this is what we call when it's talked about antibiotic resistance Mm -hmm. and that's why there's a a real fear about it um tommy you were talking about some numbers on the the deaths of people today from antibiotic resistance and what were those numbers you were saying
1: yeah it i think the the number Jumps around depending on where you look, but if we, but I think would be in the ballpark of a million to two million people, maybe um, globally globally at risk of dying from antibiotics that previously would have worked before. You mean infections maybe. that, yes. that could have that been, been treated? Been sub- yeah. 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 So I mean it is not it the antibiotic killing them, it's right. that it's losing its ability to combat the infection that yeah, ultimately is.
2: So this whole topic of antibiotic resistance is a, I mean, is it a legitimate? Yeah. It sounds like it. It's a legitimate, yeah. It's a big concern deal. and big deal.
0: It There's,
2: is. Um, how does that relate to egg, though? Is that where the yeah? Is that where the kind of the gray area is? If right, if on one hand we can say, you know, it is a big deal. That's that's it. Very much it is. But then, at the same time, I think I know our what we'll talk about today. That it's not something we, you know, need to be scared of in the use in agriculture. Is that? I fair think, to say or is there i mean that's really yeah. simplifying it
1: yeah um, i think in general it's it's fair to say cuz there's more things go, people are more aware so we've known about you know antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance for ever since i don't know 2 years after penicillin was discovered i think resistance had already been you know discovered with it and so we've known about this concept for a long time and you mentioned even under the microscope the our dongrock, the main um, character in that book, the one that kind of, um, I assume we'll get into at some point, developed the the first sulfa drugs. He was aware of this phenomena way back then and was worried about it. And this was the 30s and the 40s. Um, but in general, it seems like we've been maybe a touch slow to jump on how serious it could be um, mm-hmm. to have widespread antibiotic resistance. And so agriculture is a big user of antibiotics. And the way that evolution works, if you say you have this Target with the antibiotic, it's really good at attacking that target. But if there's slight, slight mutations within that genus or that species of bacteria, for instance, then that one's able to survive. That one's now able to replicate. And so that one is the new one that you're battling that has a mutation maybe that allows it to withstand the previously efficacious antibiotic. And so now there's a new um, bacteria uh, pathogen that's out there that needs a new antibiotic maybe to mm-hmm. ha- tackle it. And if we're using antibiotics that are meant for humans or can be that work in humans also in animals the the thought there is that you can increase the rate of this sort of process sure. happening and then these bugs end up um they can jump you know we can pick them up and carry them around the world and then that ends up being a health concern for humans um i think that's at least how i would describe yeah. it is that kind of yeah. what you I think see or the, makes the WHO, sense the
0: world health organization what it's worth, you know, they're, they're, they're talking that they're projecting that, you know, with the way things are going now by the year 2050, you know, we'll have, we'll have about maybe 10 million people will be dying a year Mm -hmm. from, um, from infections that we used to be able to treat, but we can't anymore. So, so, you know, it's, it is a big deal and, um, but there's lots of reason for optimism and it's, and we'll talk about that too, but, and it's a very complicated issue mm-hmm. actually um like it's and that's the beauty of having these chats because there's so many a- there's so many angles to this damn thing um and so it'll be kind of f- fun to peel the onion you know a little bit and I would think I just learned a new term or that's that's a, um <clears throat> a, a new yeah a new term it's called a shelling point this week I was reading about it shelling points have you heard of shelling points oh. mm Well, shelling points are like if you ask people, say just the three of us, we there's a prize, right? We get I don't know a case of Bush Light if we can (laughs) guess in this four squares to choose from one, two, three, four. But we only get the the case of Bush Light, you know, if we all guess the same square. And um, so they're all white squares except for one is blue. Well, a shelling point is the, is the coalition. The co- I mean, the the um, the non the non communicated agreement on on what we'll be attracted to. So mm. we'll f- for sure we'll all choose the blue because you know in your in your mind you can sort out why it's a better chance that we'll all be attracted to that. Is it behind and there? It's called a shelling point. What's that? Did it's we get the bush the behind it? Did we? was <laughs> bush. Hence oh. the blue. <laughs>
2: Podcast over. We got the beer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, so that I thought, well, that's kind of a cool phenomenon. Mm. And then I was thinking about it, and just now while you're talking about, I think a little bit of the shelling point is with antibiotic resistance, and the blue square is a- animal agriculture mm. has become like a, if you yeah. search on Google for antibiotic resistance, like I've been doing, you know, as I do a lot of reading on it and whatever. But it's overwhelmingly the the feed that you get from all the search engines around animal agriculture farming causing antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. So it's a shelling point. Um whereas whereas there are many factors that we could talk about. One is human, you know, misuse of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um another is that um antibiotics um exist have antibiotics have um resistance to um almost all-known man-made antibiotics. Bacteria have resistance Mm
1: -hmm. naturally um, as part of their immune system. Another one would be um, the people Googling these answers have their dog uh, or cat sitting uh, right there on their lap, you know. Maybe that dog has been into the the vet six times already that week. Yeah. That's Mm. getting dosed with antibiotics.
0: Yeah, yeah, companion animals. Mm -hmm. There's, um, you know... I don't know in in the U.S. I think we have seventy million cats and dogs, you know, with three hundred and thirty million people. Mm-hmm. And cats and dogs are great reservoirs of antibiotic resistant genes. And to your point, Tommy, you know we, dogs are licking, you know, our kids' faces. Our, I mean, we we live with the damn things, so we're sharing a lot of this together. Mm-hmm. So there's another good one. And so there's um. So there's there's many uh, ways that we could that we're how do you say there's many culprits in this mm-hmm. yeah yep.
2: everyone's focusing so, yep. on the, the on the blue square right which is ag Yep.
0: And, so,
3: it, um,
2: but so it's a
1: complete non-starter to not acknowledge that it yeah so I think that back to your question in a way is it a concern and is it yep. um, something we should be thinking about and I the answer there is for sure yes sure. It's just now where do we can we make meaningful You know, impacts on the next fifty years as we or thirty years as we get to twenty fifty, is it going to end up being ten million deaths because of this, or what are the practical steps we can take to Mm -hmm. maybe mitigate that?
2: Can we back up just for a Mm -hmm. a minute, just to for my sake, to how like how long have we been using uh, antibiotics intentionally? You know, like the manufactured Mm -hmm. sulfa drugs. Like, what does this timetable look like?
1: You're a fan of big monumental landmarks that'd be between World War One and Two. Oh yeah, we did um, talk about that. Okay. But the specific penicillin was that 1928, Dad. Yeah, Fleming, Alexander Fleming, the Scottish.
0: Yeah. Okay, so
2: we haven't even hundred. But... We have had a hundred years even of of no. adoption of these.
1: Depends what you consider actually using it though. If you look back, I don't know. I think it's two to three thousand. Well. Is fifteen hundred BC? Is so that almost? That's over three thousand years ago, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, five hundred.
1: So right. they're putting moldy bread and rubbing these. I think they called them special soils, mm. dirt that was had these. And now we know today they would have been carrying these, you know, beneficial bacteria in them. But they had the mold in the bread would be the fungi, and then the the soils would have the mixture of the microbiomes. They they knew about rubbing those on their wounds. Three really? thousand years ago, there's documentation of humans doing that. Where wow. was this happening? So that's uh, a good question. I don't know where were people three thousand years in ago the, in, the, in the Middle East. East. Yeah, the Fertile Crescent. Fertile
2: crescent yeah. Wow, yeah. that's
0: yeah. And the, so, well, the Chinese have got a three thousand year history of you know mm-hmm. herbal medicinal um, alchemy. You know that you couldn't understand because we couldn't see the chemistry. They did, yeah. but they it knew through knew f- trial
1: and error, right? Yeah, yeah, getting down to what actually is causing or what what's the helpful agent in that they didn't know until nineteen twenty eight. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's But they just say knew that. there was something but there it's for a long time. We've had the association of this thing here contained the bacteria that we now know about today. And so,
2: would that be the? I am leading this maybe a story, but would that be? Is that kind of the root of this? you know, herbal medicines or plant medicines that, of course, um, appeared all throughout history was that they were just very rudimentary mm-hmm. forms and you kind of, a lot of error involved, mm-hmm. but there was something scientific to a lot of these treatments, um, but they, they maybe didn't know the, the active sure. ingredient like you were talking about. Yep.
1: Yeah, it could be, I mean, that would be a one possible thing for mm-hmm. sure that could come from that, but plants and different... Um, Fungi would be another example of that have been used a lot for yeah. different human purposes, but they have different compounds for sure in them that can elicit positive health impact, impacts that apart from the microbiome. And sure. um, but I'd think that would be probably pretty fair to say that. Well, you know the classic is the
0: salicylic acid uh, from willow bark, okay. which is that's the base compound for aspirin and there there was that was discovered by many cultures separately of of each other you know in history so for maybe thousands of years in south america and i mean it's been discovered independently for you know pain medications and of course opium Mm -hmm. you know opiates have been used how many
1: bark do you try before you get the positive effect well that's That's right i do all of this stuff it's tremendous trial and error it's got to be yeah
2: so weak in comparison to refined aspirin. Yeah, you have to Eat right. like an entire tree's worth of bark. <laughs> yeah, to be
1: so observant. Like yeah, you have to have someone that in your group that stays alive to yeah <laughs> to witness like, all these different who's
2: the low man approaches. I'm curious about the uh, the fungi experiments. Like those are. <laughs> it's not like exactly well to sham, be trifled with. No,
0: they shamans. Yeah. They the shaman. You know, tradition was a you know healing and spiritual health of the community or the tribe, mm-hmm. but they carried unbelievable knowledge, non-written knowledge, obviously, mm-hmm. um, about herbs and plants and mm. all you know passed on for well for eons. So there's a there's a lot of base knowledge there, but uh, but the, none of it was like. It was it couldn't be understood mechanistically, you know, until yeah. until very recently. So, and then the other thing is, the good news couldn't be shared very widely because I mean, yeah. you know, how far can your fastest horse run? It's like, I think I discovered something good in the willow bark. It's like yeah. I can share the news with like, you know, within a radius of 30 miles. I mean, it's not, mm. you know, nothing could travel far. Yeah, but um.
1: No, Just it's a been. Quick side note on that. It's been um, reading a book with uh, Kit Carson in it, and he gave Kit himself Carson. sixty days to make it from California back east, and he thought he could do it. And so he was maybe the fastest of the bunch, though. So <laughs> really? sixty days to oh, get wow. the word back to. He got caught up and didn't end up making it, but that he really? thought was doable on so, horseback. Yeah, but today obviously that's a second. You get fire off a message and you've got information. Yeah. But yeah, 60 days was fast. What
0: that? What is that book called? Because Blood in, and Thunder. Oh yeah, I about read the, that. The that's Navajos brilliant.
1: And yeah. yeah, here we are back to the
0: <laughs> favorite subject.
2: Yeah, can you tell what what is a captivating? Well, subject here's matter? some
0: just to put in perspective. Because <laughs> sometimes we, you know, we live with in today's world. We we have the we have such affluence and we have such health. It's in and it happened so recently, but but um but in the context of humanity we're living in a very 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 uh rarefied atmosphere you know of of tremendous health and and economy um but the 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 history of mankind has been has been abject you know horror when it comes to disease um both viruses and bacteria infectious disease and um and they had no, no idea where it was coming from. And in fact, the, the widespread belief across everyone, you know, whether you were in, whether you were in, I, I guess in, in the plains, the savannah of Africa or in the Middle East or here, here in the North America, was there's something wrong with the, with the ear, miasma, mm-hmm. they called it, you know, mm-hmm. or there was an imbalance in the body. They call the four humors, you know, mm. between your blood and fluids and um they had these, you know, and, and they and so they had these sort of um what we look on as being like crazy sort of witchcrafty um you know um bullshit um theories. But they <laughs> but 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 they didn't they couldn't see bacteria, they didn't know what they were, and they sure as shit couldn't see viruses. So they had no idea of what was attacking them, and so hence, you know, the the usual remedy was when you know when smallpox would hit or the or the black plague. It's like take the virgin to the mountain and throw <laughs> her in the volcano, you know, cause, and if like, and if that doesn't work, ground up three more and yeah. take them up there and throw them in, or it's like. You know, eye of, eye of bat, wing, you know, wing of bat, eye of newt, yeah. and mm-hmm. stir it in with a chicken bone. Yeah. You know, and then. i heard that one I actually. Heard that does one work. does work.
2: <laughs> yeah. That one <laughs> works. We tried it that one time. It made yeah. me feel a lot better. That one actually is pretty good. So, yeah. <laughs> so but the others I get. It. It took yeah. care of pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, it was, it's it's good perspective though, because there's a lot of well, how you know, how many, people like to get caught up in right. the bad things that are going on in the world. But. Would you like to get sick today? You know, you're more than likely going to recover. But back in the 1600s with these, the four humors, the, the yellow bile, okay. the black bile, blood, and um, I'm forgetting, oh, flam. Um, you choose one depending on the season. So it was seasonal. And they'd say it's blood in the spring. They'd bleed you. They think you're at an imbalance. And, and they think that's going to work. Came in. That's off that same thought for us. I think those are supposed to is pull blood the lighting? blood and cleanse you, know. you through that, but I don't know what the What is bloodletting? Like, is that what this is where they This was it, like Hippocrates and so it was I think it's widespread that these four humours and were to keep you yeah, in balance. Blood. Blood, are you that familiar was like 2000 it? years they practiced this? I don't know. Is that the bloodletting? Yeah, that's I'm the leeches. Like,
2: well, no, bloodletting is the withdrawal of blood from a patient yeah. to prevent or cure illness. It opened up the veins. Yeah.
0: You know, in as recently as oh, 1799, yeah. how many years ago is that? That's like a 100. and... George Washington, this is first eight, president yeah. of the U.S., they drained 40% of his blood out on his deathbed. They couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't figure out why he died from the time he, was, he had a scratchy throat, and he, he died two days later, and they couldn't figure out why he died so damn quickly. Wow. They induced vomiting in him. They burned him. They burned his feet and his legs to create blisters. <laughs>
2: You're just so much better off not getting medical care. <laughs> and then care.
0: they, and they, and then they opened up his veins five times and took forty percent of his blood. Oh my gosh! It's so yeah. like this, and he had the three best physicians in the world attending him. <laughs> and
2: Most they're they're
0: creative him. when it didn't work. And they're like, "What the hell happened, Jimmy?" That like one works like ten percent of the time. Uh, yeah, normally, <laughs> he should, normally he should be up riding his horse. I mean,
2: how was there any with these? They seem so crazy now. Obviously, is the point you're trying to make, but but actually, though, how is there any degree of success that they thought it would be a good idea to like that they caught on to that bloodletting is an actual practice? Yeah,
1: you'd think would have to just make things work. Is super strong. You I, think here at the right
0: hands. Well, of and I I did read I did read that once you if you let out a lot of people's blood, they lose a lot of oxygen. They sort of have a hypoxia, which which uh-huh. sometimes can be accompanied by a euphoric feeling. Oh, uh-huh. it's like you're losing, and so the patient would say, "Oh, I feel better." Yeah, because you know, he's he's in this really low, um, oxygen. low oxygen to his brain, and has a has sort of a, a flush feeling, and oh. so they're like, "Oh, yeah, if, if a little bit
1: of blood letting works, then probably <laughs> no, a lot is going to be a lot better." So. Talk about exponential, though. For two thousand years, up through George yeah. Washington, that was how you fixed yourself if you got, yeah, you got sick. And well, even later. Today I mean, we, we're talking
2: I, about Washington, but I'm looking at a photo here in 1860. We were still. Doing that's it.
1: the that's the Civil War.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, mm. Washington for sure. But even hundred years.
0: Well, and a lot of you think that. how many witches got burned? Yeah. Because the you know the plague came through the village. Mm-hmm. It's like I saw her. Picking dandelions and underneath a hickory tree, and a and a crow landed in the tree above her. They're like burn her,
2: build a bridge out of her.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they're like, what is it? The the ducks. Yeah, floating, she yeah. weighs more than a. D- she weighs more. What than else floats? Floats a duck. Duck. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you, so wise in the ways of science? It's like perfect. Yeah so i let's was I up. was reading to put it in perspective, like all the way up to 1900, so let's say for for thousands and thousands of years tens of thousands of years, people only lived to twenty five to thirty five years of age that's about that's all you could do mm-hmm. um because of infectious disease and um and injuries which cause disease infections and um Even in, in and during right up to 1990, um, a quarter of the um, infants died in their first year of life, and a half of all children died before puberty. In
1: 1990,
0: right up till 1990. Mm. So and in 19, yeah, yeah, it's right up over the late 1800s. So, you know, half of your Eight, children are you
2: 1890 or 19 like 30 years ago or like in our lifetime. No, no, at that rate. No, okay. no 1890. 18,
0: 90, 18, okay. 1900. Okay. Yeah, i going to say that's that, like yeah,
2: <laughs> during like the yeah, in 1900
0: in the US, um 30% of all deaths were children under like the under the M-X age of 5. Yeah. So, yep. it's really terrible.
1: Yeah. Oof. I mean, that's been the biggest there's a lot of reasons why the Mm-hmm. The average age today is, you know, steadily increasing and it's made huge strides, but the child mortality and infant mortality numbers are way, way down. Yeah,
0: yeah, now we're like 0.4%. Yeah. You know, just hardly ever, I mean, it's so tragic, but it's, you know, we've made such strides mm-hmm. in that area. So, So that's why our, and now our life expectancy, so we went from 25 to 35 years of age, you know, um, now we're about seventy-eight, eighty years of age. Yeah, and um, and our population, the world population, went from, you know, in nineteen twenty-seven, I think was when we had our second billion. That was only we had two billion people in nineteen twenty-seven. <laughs> you know, when Gerard Domack was experimenting to develop the first antibiotic, mm-hmm. and today we have eight mil, eight billion. You know, six billion more people on the planet, and we're our average life expectancy is like, you know, 40 years more. Yeah. It's like it's miraculous. The advent of our understanding of
1: disease, right? Well, so, his invention is one of the well, his discovery. I don't know if it's in, I guess it's an invention that yeah. they came up Who yeah, is They this? created it. Uh, Gerhard Damach, the okay, German scientist that. Well, he, he worked for, I don't know if we, it, it's in the book that we referenced earlier, The Demon Under the Microscope. It's a fantastic book that walks through the discovery of sulfa drugs. Mm-hmm. And so... Um,
2: what well, are sulfa drugs?
1: It's uh, the drug that's uh, sulfanilamide is the, the compound. And then these original ones, they tied... So in German, Germany, um, they had these big dye manufacturing companies for staining clothes and... Um, and wools, different colors, and that was a huge industry. And so they knew to attach sulfur to the dye at one point and it would have different properties that stuck out. And so um through this elaborate process of not necessarily elaborate as far as intentional, but mm. he tested this Gerhard, he tested maybe a thousand molecules, just one after another, putting them into mice to see which ones worked and which ones different and didn't. So say he got a little positive effect with this one combination. He'd then go to his chemist and have him tweak one little atom on it and test that one again, and then they just carry on like that. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of the first. The mice antibiotic. were all infected with strep. Yes. Okay. Uh, like a terrible strep that killed
0: hundred percent of the mice. Yep. And then one day he came back from holiday or whatever, and he the and they, Christmas of 1932. Yeah, and they had one compound well, like, on the shelf. That they hadn't used, and I think his lab assistant threw it in because he had a set of mice, and he's like, "Well, try it." And the and the damnedest thing, the mice were all alive, or every other mouse was dead, and um this one group was alive, and they and they that's when that that was the eureka moment, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, oh. God damn! Mm-hmm.
2: It's like a scene out of I Am Legend. Have you seen that? Yeah. When he, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually almost came exactly up. the same with the mice or the rats, but yes. came back
0: and great. That's interesting. It's the same thing. Some of these great researchers need to go on holiday (laughs) (laughs) because Fleming did the same thing. He came back and the story is he had had dropped some mold out of his lab coat pocket into the Petri dish. And he came back from holiday two weeks later Mm. and was walking by and he looked at the Petri dish and he saw all the bacteria growth was, was, was um, a perimeter mm-hmm. of the Petri dish away from this nucleus of a mold that was sitting in the middle. And they say they say a discovery is the, uh, is the meeting of a prepared mind with an accident, right? That's our yeah. discovery. Yeah. So he had a prepared mind. he had been yep. working on this. He walked by it and he's like, bugger me, <laughs> you know, all the freaking bacteria are staying away. It's yeah. far away on the perimeter of the Petri dish from the mold. And so holidays are important.
1: <laughs> That's the takeaway.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, but so there's the two, the two biggies. sulfur was the first antibiotic really yeah. ever um identified. And they and um after he after they 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 isolated it and then they scaled up how to make it industrial manufacturing because mm-hmm. the Germans were the uh, the leaders in chemical industrial chemical processes. And um and then they were able to use that in World War II, you know. Every soldier carried a white packet, pouches of
1: sulfur. Just a quick comment on that. I know you mm. just watched this too, but Band of Brothers, mm. if, if we're wondering oh, how brilliant. historically accurate that is, oh, sure. there's reference to, to sulfur really? throughout that. Yeah, yeah, that's what they rip they open and the, dump it on the... dump the white powder yeah. on the open wound, and the medic's carrying it around, and he's asking for people for their sulfur. That's what and they're so, doing. Yeah,
2: Okay. It was like life I mean I mean it, it makes a lot of sense now knowing because it was I mean, it was a dramatic wounds thing to get prior more to sulfur.
1: The, right. And those wounds prior to the sulfur is what ends up being what can progress to cutting old sawbones procedures. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So every every soldier carried packets of
0: sulphur and every medic carried like kilos of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I think the Americans we they were able to ramp up penicillin in like 1943 so halfway through the second world war and then it and then it became the it's a broader spectrum use mm-hmm. and then penicillin's took off um you know to be to be used of course worldwide around um, that as shortly the first after that choice
2: maybe around the when what time the 50s
0: 1943, okay. first commercially used and then yeah and then immediately after that oh basically. yeah just everyone started yeah. producing them
2: how do you without going into crazy detail mm-hmm. it might be maybe it's just me that would be interested but how do you actually produce these like what does that process look like i know we talked about the nitrogen um another they not related but it's a maybe it's a recurring question i'm going to have is how, how are these things actually manufactured but right to take that you know, you know the science works, but then to adopt it on a mass commercial scale. Yeah. Do you have any knowledge on how that would have happened?
0: Yeah, they. I mean, Tommy maybe knows too. But on penicillin, that's called a. I, I know that they have different modes of action. So the sulfur has a. They found an uh, is a, It's a long story, actually. The dye wasn't useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of irony because they did it because they were dye manufacturers, and then they after after thousands of experiments, they're like, hold on. We actually don't need the dye; we just need the sulfur. Mm. But After the French beat them to it. Actually, yeah, right. The Pasteur Institute yeah. um, discovered it first, and but it's like all their money was tied up in the dye piece of it. Anyone could make a sulfur molecule mm. um, through through uh, chemical manipulation. I don't know how they do it, sure. Jack, but in a lab, just on a bench top, I guess you can put together the sulfur. Yeah, this ring that they yeah. a special uh, which the sulfur was the key active, and the way it killed bacteria is it starved them by sort of exclusion or blocking the uptake of. Um, compl- I'm not, in, I mean, I'm not an expert, but it blocked. Finally, it blocked folic acid, which the mm-hmm. bacteria need to survive, and they couldn't synthesize folic acid, and so it killed them by an indirect route, if you will, by starving them of of an essential nutrient, folic acid.
1: Yeah. Well. Penicillin's mm. different mode of action, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that one targets the cell wall. And so there's gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria, and they differ based off of this thing called the peptidoglycan layer. They're thick versus thin, and so the um, penicillin is able to inhibit the peptidoglycan layer from forming, and therefore the cells end up leaking and become fragile and end up being Don't. more susceptible to, you know, the well. the antibiotic that can actually. Kill them, and so there's yeah. It's a I think it's a good point that antibiotics. It's not just a one thing. They don't have one mode of action, and so that's why some are more efficacious for certain things, and some work better in other scenarios. But their mode of action differ quite yeah quite widely.
2: Okay. Yeah. So we're 1943. Around then is when we say kind of mass adopted by humans. Mm -hmm. When did Uh, when did it make its way into agriculture? Was it basically the same? As soon as we realized it worked in people, we realized we can start applying it to livestock?
0: I think so, Jack. You know, once they scaled up, these factories everywhere, and I think on penicillin, you asked how they make it. I think penicillin is primarily made by fermentation yeah process to culture. grow these molds so they but in a huge vats you know sure. like so they scaled up in the war you know yeah. had, i mean mm-hmm. the war drove scaling up <laughs> cuz yeah you, know, you needed it by the gazillions and so now you had all the factories scaled up and all the knowledge you know there were no patents worth a damn everything was shared all around the world so they were started making it and every continent was making sulfur and penicillin Within, I think within ten years of the discovery of sulfur drugs, there were already five thousand four hundred derivatives, <laughs> um, you know, of that compound that had been made. So it just exploded, and it was called the miracle drug. Like, there's two famous events that also made it huge. They, that are, I think maybe are interesting. One of them was uh, FDR Jr. It was a uh, he Franklin Delano Roosevelt his His son had a i have to think about it did he have a sore yeah, throat so he or had strep. He strep had throat. strep throat yep and he was dying and um and this was when sulphur was still sort of speculative wasn't okay. the world didn't really know that it was the real deal yep and they they everything else failed he was dying just from strep throat you can imagine it mm-hmm. he was like twenty one years of age he was engaged to be married next week anyway and and uh So they they rushed in some Prontansil, which is the sulfur drug, and they loaded him up on it, and miraculously it saved his life. Wow. And then another one was Winston Churchill. Yeah. He'd been meeting with Stalin, the Allied powers, Stalin and and, uh, FDR in Iran in 1943. Churchill got pneumonia, in Egypt, and he, and he was deathly sick. I mean, the war could have had a different outcome, you know, yeah. if Churchill had mm-hmm. a died there. He And they loaded him up on sulfur, and he credits that to saving his life. You know, like two days later, he was good to go. Wow. <laughs> Back to smoking cigars, yeah, drinking cognac. The- <laughs>
1: yeah, with pneumonia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. The cigar yeah. doesn't fix it, the sulfur will.
2: And if that doesn't, the bloodletting. <laughs> yeah, it's it so, a bile out of Yeah, and you it. can wow, imagine,
0: it
1: went around the world, yeah, both that- of these events. But even you know. to, to back up on the the iconic yeah. nature of how bad these things can go, or how well these are a positive outcome. But Kelvin yeah. Coolidge, I think, was the example prior to that, where his son. Who loved the hell is Kelvin play... Coolidge? <laughs> is that the president? No, I think that's right. I think you're the president just... from the Come 1800s. Come on, to be kidding me? I don't know any more about him, but I know this little bit about He's his got son.
0: Like does not he have like a, a lot of bowling trophies? <laughs> Sounds right. It's the Big Lebowski. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the dude abides, For man. For the record,
2: I'm pretty sure you know who Calvin Coolidge is. But, <laughs> but you do put a good point that I don't think if anyone out there can name one thing that he did in his right. uh, term as president
1: without Googling it. I know, he had a, I know he had a kid that died, and that's where I'm <laughs> heading. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you don't get okay. that answer. Tell All right, me. tell us. This better be a good diff,
0: dude.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a good one. His his kid was playing tennis and just got a blister on his foot. I think we've all had blisters, and ended up getting strep infected into the blister. And his and then his son died a week later. This Jeez. was prior to antibiotics, Weak. so yeah, week. Weak. <laughs> That's
2: from tennis. From tennis. For, from, from a blister. blister. Yeah. Right. Oh, <laughs> tennis. Sounds... I don't think tennis did him. I think <laughs> it was the blister. Cause <laughs> of death listed That's on. That's a good the... listener though. <laughs> Moral that story. <laughs> Don't stick to pickleball.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. But yeah, like a boil, acne would damn near kill you, you know. I mean, it did. It's just unreal mm-hmm. how many people died from infectious disease. Did you know that we like we're so lucky to be here, you know. We're all we're descendants of 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 Europe. You know, coming through New Zealand or coming through America, European descendants and but um you know the bubonic plague you know that was a uh, bacteria yersinus, yersinus pestis i think it was like a harry potter yeah, thing it, it, was right pretty sure that's harry potter right 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 but that the bubonic plague you know terrorized um europe um, for centuries killed 50 100 million people you know just unbelievable mm-hmm. carried on a rat yeah. you know the flea Mm.
1: Then the it would bite people and spread the the bacteria like that. Was that one known pretty quickly? What was carrying it? Obviously not the flea part, but the the, I mean, the flea was known too. But did people know pretty no. early on into this that it was the rats, or did that take that years took, and years of t- observation? Right. No, they didn't put that together. There's a
0: another great book it's called Justinian's Flea. It's the fall of the, the Roman Empire in the east, out of Constantinople, which is today is Istanbul. But that's where it originated out of there, out of Turkey. And um and then it traveled on all what? the trading ships up the Mediterranean and killed millions of people on the way, every port it stopped at, in Carthage and in in Italy and up into Venice and south of France and, mm-hmm. and, and um spread it all around the continent. And um, the flea, the flea, wow. traveling on boats. You know, they the the rats would would was were famous on boats. They traveled yeah. with everyone, and um and they spread it. And so we're damn lucky to be here. Between that and smallpox, smallpox killed up to five hundred million people in Europe in this, in the in the nineteenth, I think, century. Five hundred million <laughs> over a century, but still hell there was hardly any people I was back say then. There
1: was 500 yeah. million there wow. to kill yeah.
0: and that's that another cool bacteria story
1: too about the inoculation how that i can't remember his name do you know his name the guy that connected oh, yeah. it to the smallpox
0: is a virus though i should have
1: i got to clear that variola virus but yeah infectious as hell yeah but the connection to the the cowpox yeah, uh, yeah. edward jenner yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's right Tell that as
0: milkmaids are in this. I like to hear about milkmaids. Get this, <laughs> <Lee> one, <hook. laughs> <Yeah>. buxom milkmaids. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, they were I known. <laughs> they were known, and everyone they fantasised about them because they had beautiful complexion. Oh, milkmaids, really? yeah, because smallpox, of course, the the trademark of anyone who survived it. Well, hardly anyone survived, but because um, it killed like eighty percent, people oh. died in three days. It's like bring out your dead. Yeah. You know, they're running around with the cat. Yeah. But they would be, they were scarred for life with pox, blister, scar tissue on their faces. And, but the mm. milkmaids had these beautiful, Wait, virginal, I virginal like, faces. I
2: feel like we jumped ahead, Tommy. How is, wow. how is connected. milkmaid connected to good skin, connected to not dying oh, yeah. from smallpox? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You didn't follow?
2: No, I didn't. But
1: <laughs> well, I, I, if it, it I had to guess, together.
2: something about the milk or the cow so, helped them out.
1: Yeah. That's right. I think. Very clever. That's, yes. Look at this me. Jenner had identified that people that Girls. had exposure, these milkmaids in particular, kids or anything that had um, been exposed to cattle or had um, the cowpox was a slight variation from smallpox, right? So that kind of Yeah, cowpox is on them. the udder, on yep. the
0: teats of the cow. Okay. So they would milk the cow, the milkmaids milk the cows every day, and they they would get a mild infection from the mm-hmm. cow's version of this virus blistering but it it, it rendered them 100 percent immune to the smallpox so
1: yeah so he started he i mean maybe he wasn't the first to identify that mm-hmm. phenomena but he inoculated kids with yep. um cowpox because i think kids were even more susceptible if I, yep. they had a really really high death rate wow. and that yeah that solved it almost like a that's a vaccine though and that's where the yeah, name vaccine. vaccine? Uh
0: huh. But you know that's where the name vaccine comes from. Cal. Mm, in Latin. Vaca. Oh, sure. Vaca. Vaca, Vaca. Yeah. Vaccine. Wow. There we go. I know. That? I know. Well, that's it. And it was just like staggering how many billions of lives have been saved.
2: How would he inoculate the kids in this? Because what time period are we talking about?
0: The janners in seventeen. I mean, rough. Okay, so would he just, you know, rudimentally get them sick? S- he scratched them on it. Okay. He opened a wound on their arm and then he would put some of the pustules from the cowpox into sure. the wound.
2: Mm-hmm. It was very manually, yeah. very, yeah, contact. Yeah. Of Nothing really. Crude method. Yeah. Crude uh-huh.
0: early vaccine, but effective. But it worked. Yeah. Wow. And, um, That's interesting. and then it started from there. And then, um, and today, you know, there's, like for I think they adapted it the there's a famous story around the bifurcated needle. I think it's Jonas Salk who invented the polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. You could Google that, but uh, there was a famous invention of the this bifurcated needle with the two you know like goal posts, and it holds the droplet between them and allows you to scratch. and that they, they took these needles all around the world, and the needle is is a big part of the success story too. You know, because it allowed them to administer it to, you know, thousands of people a day, an accurate dose and, um, you know, efficiently. Oh. So there's a...
1: I don't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no,
0: it's an amazing um, innovation too, um And that's how they did it. Vaccination of certain vaccines have to be done like that or mm. were done like that. So yeah. Anyway, there was a mysterious world that you know humanity lived through. That today, you know, we got access to all this knowledge, and and we're sort of, we're sort of um, blind to, blind to how lucky we are, you know, and how how fricking take it for in granted. The, like, literally, they were in the dark, and tragedy was, you know, every like, you know. Tragedy within your family, you know, half your family died, mothers died. You know, it's like in Paris in the 1700s, 1700s, they something like 40% of all women, you know, that died in childbirth in one of Paris's biggest hospitals. And they had no idea why, but the doctors were infecting each mother as they examined them. Dirty hands, yeah, they never washed. Yep. and they were spreading this um you know terrible strep um bacteria from one mother to the other and it was the biggest yeah. hospital in Europe i think in paris 40% of all the mothers who went in there died it's just horrendous
1: mm. i think the the mothers knew this too but like i think the at that time they were it was known that they were in general safer to try to have the the, you know, give birth at home or uh, not going into the hospital, but the care that was provided and they'd get, you know, kind of the help if they went in there, they they rolled the dice and decided that, that some places maybe it was 10%, some places it was 40%. Those odds are really pretty poor. Um, but they'd still yeah. roll the dice to get a couple of weeks of well. How you know, how food bad must it be and... outside if that's what you decide <laughs> yeah. to do? Yeah, whoa. it's
0: like your life must really suck. If I if I'm so bad, I want to go. I want to go in and have a rest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm this, willing to take the odds. Sixty percent chance. Yeah, but that childbed fever, right? Is that what wow. it was? Yeah, childbed fever. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. So it was unbelievable. Right. So having babies was a terribly, terribly dangerous you know um activity, yeah, uh, for so long, you know, so, and they had no idea what was killing people, so you know back to back to um you know young women and volcanoes because they they had no idea it wasn't until yeah. uh they first saw bacteria in in sixteen hundreds late sixteen hundreds anton antony Leuvenhoek, a dutch um a Dutch um uh, fabrics guy, actually. He was into textiles, but he had a hobby of shining glass, and he developed the first microscope to look at bacteria. You have that oh, hobby. It's hilarious. hobby. <laughs> <laughs> if you, I mean, if you just, I mean, but thank you know God that? for such I mean, an esoteric hobby. I you know? get it, but it's so funny. To, I know. It's what's like, your hobby? What are you shining doing? Glass. Like, sh- I like to go hunting. What, what do dog? you like to do? It's shining oh, glass. Shining glass. I like to play tennis. No, actually, Be I'm careful with too that. busy shining my glass. No, he was a great polisher of glass.
2: Oh, polish. I thought he meant like shining lights through glasses.
0: <laughs> well, he did that too. He put a light behind it. Again, anyway. But then he, he 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 opened up the whole universe. Like no one knew it existed. Microorganisms. The biggest thing they'd been able to see before I think I blazed then,
2: over it, but he invented the microscope. He so, did. He okay.
0: invented the first microscopes. and Prior to that, the biggest thing they'd ever seen was like mice shit. <laughs> like, yeah. and then he he was able to look at everything he looked at, you know he looked at um hair on his head, he looked at uh, fruit food, everything he would look at what else he yeah, well, there is a sordid story where where he actually looked you know he he was very fond of of looking at his own sperm underneath him <laughs> in a microscope and watch those little watch those little bastards swimming around yeah. and uh, apparently. You know, he, so polishing glass wasn't the only thing he, he liked to polish. Oh, God. <laughs> but no, Thank no, you. but seriously. So then he was being invited to all the royal oh, courts. Like he discovered a universe bacteria, ever, protozoa, yeah. and it was everywhere. Like he would yeah. challenge them you, sh- you give me anything to look at, and then he'd let them look at here's it's it's, you know, bacteria on everything. Yeah. And he called it, they didn't know what to call it, so he called it animacules, small animals. Huh. Animacules, huh. today we call them, you know, microbes. Oh, um, insane! That would have had to be. Oh, I know. Like you just it's like when he's old, looking on his glass, he's like, Whoa,
2: your perspective yeah. would yeah. just be similar, like in the opposite direction of like looking mm-hmm. through a telescope at the night sky and well, exactly, like yeah. whoa, the first time, he's like, but the whoa. opposite, equally eye like, opening. Yeah, you, have
0: you no idea. Question your,
2: I mean, everything you've yeah. ever
1: thought. So that was oh, the first almost time. Weird though. You yeah, look this down, is weird. It's like True. crawling on your finger everywhere. It's just like you would have no idea.
0: Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah. So he would. He looked at you know pond water. Well, anyway, now that you know the penny started dropping. Now they're like first time they're able to figure it out. Oh, maybe it's not the miasma of the air. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not the local witch. You know. Maybe it's not the. You know. Eye of newt, wing of bat, and um, they were able to figure it out that that and the, and then more people got involved and they started to understand that these microbes um, are not appear to be living with us healthily because they're in everything, mm-hmm. our tear drops on our hands. Healthy people are covered in these damn things, so it's not. But then they're also able to find that um, these huge concentrations of abnormal ones in wounds and as, as example and then they they started figuring it out that these mm-hmm. things are a, are a, are a, are a, what do you call a Jekyll and Hyde mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. they're not they're not all good and they're not all bad but when the bad ones are they're killers yeah yeah and um and that was so it was a huge it, it put science onto a whole new trajectory his that that the, that first revelation of seeing these little buggers. Like, well, you know, kind
1: of that led to um, Lister. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he was, if I understand correctly, prior to the um, yeah. discovery and development of sulfa drugs. Yeah. But He was on to this childbed fever. Mm. He was, um, oh. you know, disinfecting the. Telling doctors to wash their hands. Yeah. Yeah. Using antiseptics to. Cleanse everything, and he was able to start seeing his numbers drop Yeah, Yeah, in um, the hospitals that his methods were being implemented in. You know, surgical equipment was clean, and everything was being... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was able to... That's right.
0: It was a huge breakthrough. And we have today Listerine, right? And it was a disinfectant, mouthwash, whatever.
1: You can start connecting the dots yeah. so dots. you get yeah. the, the microscope to see what it is, and then you've got this idea that, okay, maybe killing some of those sees as a positive in health outcomes, yeah. and now it's connecting what about the bacteria yeah. is doing the, the yeah. damage. Yeah. Yeah, no, that? absolutely. That was, the, that was kind of in
0: broad in a broad canvas. Those are the steps, mm-hmm. you know, of epoch sort of um, discoveries and breakthroughs, right? Mm-hmm different eras. And then we come to the era of, of antibiotics. They called it the golden era. So now we're back to post-World War II. Um, and, um, yeah, we've traveled a long way. So Justinian's flea was like 540 years after Christ was born, and now we're up to post-World War II. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge jump in time. But now there's... They called it the golden era because we we were able to treat damn near any pa- any disease on the planet, you know, and health, you know, boomed. So it looked like we were looked like we were on Halley's comet. You know, we were on this thing to have a tremendous ride. Mm-hmm. We got rid of polio, you know, through vaccines. We got rid of smallpox has being eradicated from the world. Mm-hmm. That's just one of the most amazing vaccination stories. It's the biggest killer we've ever mankind's ever known, and we got rid of it completely. Wow. It's only it only exists in two labs in in the in Russia and the U S. What's the I benefit
2: think. of keeping it around. Wow,
0: well, that's a very good question. It's so freaking lethal, you know. It's a very good question, Jack. But There's- there are two. There are two strains of smallpox that are kept in these the highest bio-level labs in the world. Seems
1: like both should just agree to throw it away at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because we have no immunity to it anymore, you know?
2: Right. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting.
0: Uh, Well, it is. So we got rid of that, and then, you know, the captain of death was pneumonia, so-called, because once you started coughing and tuberculosis, you know, we got all that. We got, I mean, diphtheria, cholera, you know, which is fecal c- contamination of water through disinfection and water sanitation. And mm-hmm. and then all these amazing antibiotics, we were just, like, spitting them out,
1: <laughs> you know, one after the other, this derivatives. This was, was before FDA. Um, sure. So it was really <laughs> anything could flood the market, and, yeah. um, and the, the claims on them were— you know, for the most part, this was like you mentioned, a miracle drug, and so they had really lofty claims too on what it could do. And people yeah. would there's stories of, you know, mm-hmm. it had some success with gonorrhea or something like that. And so there's yeah. people, you know, would take a couple sulfa pills before they'd go out on the town for the night, and right, just like it was a recreational over-the-counter sort yeah. of drug and um free for the, all, yeah. yeah,
2: with no thought that a lot could of countries
1: be- in the world today you still
0: can have that. They're all pretty much old drugs. Are, st- are still over the counter in lots of country, developing countries. Yeah. yeah, which is one of the things we come back to on resistance. But yeah, but so everything it looked like we really had this thing. We had the what do you say? We, we had it.
2: Had it figured out. We
0: Had it figured out, man. Can't go and, wrong, right? But um, but just quietly, the resistance to all these pathogens had started to evolve. Yeah. So you started seeing less and less you know, killing ability from the antibiotics mm-hmm. in, in particular. Um, vaccines still very effective, but when antibiotics, do you,
2: no. Do you, yeah. when do you think, like how long after this mass adoption did it start, did it take for people to start noticing? Not even that it started happening, but to start taking note that, oh, this isn't as mm-hmm. effective well, as it once for, was.
1: I don't know the exact time point, but it had been quick that sure. it was starting to be identified and for instance there hasn't been a new antibiotic that's clinically available since i think 1975 okay so it's so between that golden era done and when yeah, they started to
2: realize it was a pretty short window mm-hmm. okay
1: yeah um and it could have been you know i don't know if there's a specific turning point but for those the golden age or the golden years the 40s to the 60s it was widespread huge amount of usage um stemming from that fdr junior story there was one thing that stopped it, which is actually interesting. Do you remember hearing about the um, the elixir sulfa drug yeah. that made it to the market? Yeah. And it it had uh something glycerol in it. I can't remember what it was. Uh Some compound. You could look it up if you don't mind, Jack. It was like, it, uh, the, like antifreeze sulfa.
0: that we use in our
1: cars today, antifreeze. Yeah. And it was that, dressed up with some raspberry flavorings, and, uh, and it contained the sulfa, but this... It was, yeah, its title was Elixir something, so it sounded yeah, really, yeah. really good, but it killed, I don't Under, know, 130 more than 100 people, people, something. And yeah, it
2: says that it was a improperly prepared sulfamide antibiotic that uh-huh. caused mass poisoning in the United States yep. in 1937. Yeah, so yeah.
1: 1936, I think, was the FDR Jr. thing, and then 1937 yeah. was this, and then it just stopped. But and then it really picked back up again once people identified that it wasn't the sulfa component that (laughs) did the the damage. It was the the carrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because that's what differentiated that product. Yeah. Oh man. The chemist ended up killing himself. Um, He was denying it forever that he was guilty, and it obviously weighed on him. For sure, he didn't. It was an innocent mistake. Yeah, everyone was bringing new compounds to the market, and yeah.
0: So that that sort of ushered in the FDA. Think back to those days. Yeah. They
1: weren't even doing animal testing. No, they, doing, just, they might not even do in vitro testing. They might, they might put, have done zero testing Just give it Thomas a go right. it seems yeah. like they did I have zero a testing with this one.
0: <laughs> it's like they have a board, they have a meeting, and it's like, I have a good hunch that this yeah. will work. So they're like, yeah, all right, put it out in the market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put a raspberry flavor in it. Yeah. Oh, you're a genius, Jack. Put raspberry <laughs> in it. Did you hear what he said? <laughs> you're the head of product development. Thank you.
2: Yeah, no responsibility
0: though, in it. But you the couldn't. Way. It was the point. Is it looked like it couldn't go wrong. Yeah. And they kept, uh, but once they identified the the central structure of these penicillin sulfur, then they were able to you know add like hundreds and hundreds of slight changes to it. So they were able to stay ahead of the resistance of the bacteria. They already had seen it in uh, within two years uh penicillin they'd seen widespread resistance to it in hospitals and treating soldiers in the battlefields even but they were able to come with a new derivative like i'm not a doctor or whatever but let's say they came with ampicillin then they come with amoxicillin and then doxicillin and they're all slightly a little bit different and so it's like the red queen you know you got to keep running as the bacteria keep adapting then you've got to change the angle of attack, and for a while we were able to do that um, with generating these different classes of of drugs, um, and to great success, you know. But um, but now the pipeline is is really running dry, and that's why we're you know that's why the world is really starting to be very worried about it. Mm-hmm. It's like all the low fruit, in some sense, has been picked. And um, now we gotta develop you know, we have to reevaluate on different fronts, which brings us to the whole talk tonight really, is talking about well, where are the critical control points, you know? Um and then and then what are the opportunities, you know, and and so the good news is there is lots of room for optimism, like and we'll we're, we're we'll get to that too but the critical control points and the who is leading this one health project global you know education around this issue but it's very difficult you know because we have (laughs) the world is growing and our consumption of food animals is growing and will grow and uh, as we've talked before you know we're headed from eight billion people to nine and a half billion in your lifetime and um and as we get more affluent, the first thing we do is eat more meat. So we're going to eat more animals, which means we need more animals. And so our drug use is predicted by the I think by who again? Or doesn't matter. U.N. But to go up, you know, by in in humans to go up about 65% in the next 30 years, yeah, because of our increased population, and then. Because of the huge number of people coming in the developing world, going to need mm-hmm. a lot more drug, you know, infectious disease problems, and then also an aging population in our part of the world. You need a lot more, you know, inf- they have a lot more persistent infections, like urinary tract, just as an example. So we're going to need a lot more antibiotics, and then in animal agriculture, our business, you know, we're going, they're going to need something similar.
1: Fifty to sixty-five percent more antibiotics predicted, and it seems like if we just take the mm-hmm. look at the problem of antibiotic resistance, that's a highly conserved thing. These bacteria have the upper hand. They've been they've been doing it for four hundred and forty million years, maybe something like that, developing and sending out their best fighters to fight other ones, and so maybe, they're really maybe really more at than this. billion. It years. might be more than that. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, the one. Genus that a lot of the the streptomycin I think is said to be five hundred million something in the soil ancient anyway, so old we're we're talking we've been we've known about it for a hundred years, and it's got a billion years of learning that we've done part of that so um, I think you were telling us about this maybe prior to this starting, mm-hmm. the starting antibiotic resistance of compounds that we've developed today that would have no business of ever being exposed to it that they found in caves, you know in remote parts of the world and so it just goes to show that it's a natural process bacteria are always evolving and spitting out resistant um progeny or you know and and so it's a, it's an ongoing battle and it seems like today the the public would like less antibiotic usage and i think that's good you know the judicious mm-hmm. use of antibiotics is probably ought to be something that had been done a while back but that's almost like a band-aid, if you to me, when I think about it, it's like it's patching the wound. It's not really solving it. You're just slowing down the inevitable of creating more resistance, because we're not going to stop using antibiotics. More people, more animals, and you can't just let something that's sick go untreated. So we're going to end up using the antibiotics we have. Well, if there hasn't been a new one since '75 brought to the market, we're going to be using the same ones and developing. You know, we might be using them at a lesser degree as each year goes by, but we're not bringing new products into the game to help with the new strains that have been identified and so
0: you mean like new classes
1: of drugs yeah yeah, yeah. New antibiotics. I, we're bringing new
0: new antibiotics but they're but they're not novel right, right. classes they're they're derivatives of existing classes why aren't we i think
2: that's new,
1: the distinction why aren't we yeah.
2: bringing new classes since 75
1: so um well there's a couple of reasons we i think we that mm-hmm. we were hoping to get the chance to bring up, but oh, there is a monetary. I'm jumping the gun. No, 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 can, no, it's okay. great. Talk about it. at the end of the day, it takes these big companies with huge resources to invest into, um, you know, to uncover these new classes and to create new, new antibiotics. And the the ROI isn't there is a mm. big part of it. It's um, if an antibiotic is really good, it's only intended to be used for a short amount of time. So if it works, the sickness goes away and then you stop using it. Um, and in general, antibiotics are being used less anyway. So you're developing something that is intended to not be used much. Sure. And the, the trials and everything that it takes to to really bring that to market takes a lot, a lot of time, ultimately to be somewhat inexpensive, um, an expensive endeavor that doesn't have the, the payoff at the end. So yeah. the R&D component is hard to convince these big companies. Um, I think there's 45 antibiotics in testing today Um, only two of them are by what we would call big pharma everything else is small to medium sized and so i think having some level of um, incentive there to invest in this area is probably needed it's been um, to finish my thought from before about the band-aid thing that's kind of where I was going is it seems like almost reinvesting and looking into it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment is the way to go rather than just slowly withdrawing the use of them across time. Um, it seems like that just delays the inevitable. I don't know yeah. what your thoughts are on that.
2: Yeah. I, is the goal to delay brilliant. it and also be developing new technology and give yourself time to develop new technology or cause it, cause if that's yeah. the case, then that makes, makes more sense than if it's just let's try to get a few extra years out of this thing
1: you would that's back to the, yeah correct that's how it should be and uh, I yep. would think that it hopefully is what's happening but when you but see that only two working. big players actually in this area there it, it seems like maybe that part's not being held up sure
0: yeah I think there's, there's many pieces for sure uh, they're businesses obviously they're Ansible they're stockholders and you know they would love and they would they they would much rather you know produce an antidepressant that you know you can take every day every day mm-hmm. of your life you know and hopefully remain depressed and keep taking them but <laughs> or a statin drug, you take it every day every day every day that's what's really what drives the money, and Tommy's point is valid you know if you're just using it for treatment. If the, if the antibiotic is efficacious, whether it's for an animal, a cow, or a person, you know, five-day treatment and you're done. So the money piece, and then also the the regulatory piece, it becomes so precautionary. As we talked about before, when sulfur and penicillin first came to the market, there was no restriction. You could just buy it and sell it and make it, and there was no FDA or no agency to oversight. But now we have maybe the pendulum's gone too far that they're so precautious about trialing drugs uh, antibiotics in particular that the companies are the, like the cost to to enter into that l- uh, lottery system or if you will or that big that it take 10 15 years of millions and millions of dollars and then it, the outcome is unlikely you know it's something mm-hmm. like only um two out of 10 or two out of 15 drugs in the pipeline that make it to like actually make it into clinical trials, the final trials period, only like uh, 20% will ever get to market. Mm -hmm. So it's very risky for them to invest. And I think this is where governments actually need to play a role with research, you know, using our great universities. I mean, we have the best universities in the world and, and, um, and obviously other countries do, too. So I, I think governments, in the interest of their own people and health, probably need to take a bigger role in developing antibiotics, um, novel antibiotics, because it's not that financially interesting for for just for companies, mm. you know.
1: I think that's the a little bit of the counterintuitive point, that most people sure. in public wouldn't know that mm-hmm. the solution is actually maybe more, but different. You know, more antibiotic, antibiotic, but different antibiotic actually to stay ahead of the. Mm -hmm. What's your analogy again? The Red Red Queen Queen. from
0: Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Yeah. That's a phenomenon where you have to keep running forever.
2: So, is that so if Mm -hmm. you can keep introducing um, new classes, like we're Mm -hmm. saying here, which you're saying would be the way to go, is that also a a finite um, timetable or game? Like, would we end up in the same situation? Are there a limited number of classes, or is that like exponentially um opens the doors to to way more time
1: that's that's the right question i i don't know if you have a an answer or not dad but it seems like um that's one reason for optimism is these natural excuse me these natural um uh antibiotics that we've developed um that come from the microbes there's they really largely come from the soil bacteria um and the soil that's been tested for these is, turns out, it's like a really, really small percentage of total soils. And so, okay. there's one paper that I read. I'll can't remember who it is, and I think I think you read it too. But we could put it in the um, in the notes of this episode. But that one talks through the potential for maybe thousands of others that okay. are out there that haven't classes. been identified yet. A um, bunch of new classes and maybe a of different NPs. These um, natural products from okay. microbes that have antibiotic properties that could be tested. I mean, that's just in different soils. And so there's um, there's so a there's huge a lot world out there, out there that's yeah. untapped that it, it seems like it's actually been underexplored. Yeah. because um, there is so much progress right off the bat. There's thir- you know, there's maybe a new class developed every year between the twenties and the or the forties and the sixties. A new class was identified. Um, but that was just using, you know, a couple different um, uh, starting points, a couple different batches of soil maybe, and they developed that many out of it and then the the public started catching wind of antibiotic resistance and, and all of that, and it slowed down that whole story. And so long answer, I think it sounds like there is reason for optimism if to start exploring other areas to, you know, and, and that starts with reinvesting um, and having some reason to incentivize yeah. the research rather than be disincentivized by the, the payout of it.
0: Wow. Yeah. They're, they're, oh, go ahead. Well, the, 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 you know, most of our antibiotics, as time said, come from the soil, but they're coming from bacteria. Um, a, you know, bacteria have been at, at, in a, a, a war forever with each other, you know, because there's so many bacteria. Like even in our own bodies, you know, people might be interested to know, but it's estimated we have like 39 trillion bacteria cells in our body you know, and now we call it the microflora. And the microflora populate our microbiome, you know, which is also includes fungus and virus. and But bacteria, about 39 trillion cells. And our self-cells, who we are, is about 30 trillion. Mm-hmm. So there's more bacteria in us than our, our own human cells. And um, That's what kept the microscope, Leeu and Hook, busy. That kept all those very years, busy, right very busy, very busy. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Exactly. So, but anyway, and there's um, and so there's uh, um, that's maybe uh, well, that's very fascinating. But the bacteria have been at, at, and there's so many different types of them. They've been at war. So that's
1: a that's actually I -hmm. forgot to go to bring that part up. I'm happy you Mm -hmm. did because that's another area that think um, when we think about reinvesting in areas to look at is the already tried um, compounds. A lot of them were only tested in vitro, but -hmm. the thing about these bacteria is they act based off of their surroundings. So in some instances, they might be on the attack. In some instances, they might excrete things that are defensive. And so depending on what's going on at that time and place, they may have an answer for it. And so in vitro, think of a test tube, drop some stuff into this can right here Mm -hmm. and and see how it behaves. That's a lot different than a biological system. So um, how it would actually behave in the... In an animal or in a human, oh. and so that's another area that um, seems yeah. like an area where it could make some progress. Yeah, testing things that we already things. know yes. in different,
2: mm-hmm. in, you know, in real environments. Yeah, or, because or different environments.
0: Some they have this duality. that can be very beneficial to us. Some bacteria, and then mm-hmm. but if you get out of whack, they can become very aggressive and destroy us. Yeah. So this is part of the nuance, you know. And um, but what I was going to say is, we've got, you know, how we developed our our drugs has been by um, finding them in nature and then synth- synthetically producing them, isolating them and synthetically producing them. So mm-hmm. that the, their origin of all this, of all this. Um, killing ability of pathogens is actually we've, we're come it's coming from nature mm-hmm. you know we're finding it from other bacteria or viruses and then we're harnessing it and um i think there's you know there's so much more to be had in that area to be learned from how bacteria have are are using toxins as example to destroy each other to create space for their own you know populations mm-hmm. and and um, so there's reasons there. I think Jack, there's a lot to be learned there, and there is a lot of work being done in this area, and some significant significant pub papers have been published on on more specified toxins that we can harness that we get from bacteria,
1: mm-hmm. learn
0: from them, mm-hmm. and then we can then we can target pathogens, the 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 bad guys that we want specifically like shoot them with a 22 rifle instead of shooting them with a shotgun and our shotgun approach for the last 80 years has been you know broad spectrum antibiotics which means just scorched earth mm, kill yeah. kill all gram negative bacteria in your body yeah. you know in the hope that you get the one bad guy
3: mm.
0: and that's so that's that's caused a lot of the resistance problem or it's accelerated it because yeah. Here's what happens with humans. That's part of the story. As we all know this. You go, you present to the doctor. You bring your kid along to the doctor, and he's got a, an earache, you know, and um, kids crying, and and um, and um, and, he, and and then the doctor has to do something, and so he wants to send you home with a, some ampicillin antibiotic. Because the mother or the father, no one's going to leave there without the drugs. The doctor's mm-hmm. under pressure, and he's like, "Well, what the hell? I might as well, you know, it can't hurt. Maybe it'll spread from his ear to his throat, and so." But what you don't know is the kid will be okay in two days' time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he goes home, and then and you give little Johnny his first antibiotic pill, and then you give him another one at night time, and then another one the next morning. But he already feels great, so now the other ten pills in the bottle get put in the shelf cuz he he's feeling good and he runs around and he doesn't like to take the pills anyway. And so this happening this is happening all the time that we don't finish our course of antibiotics. Number one is we get it for a virus like we got a sniffly throat, a sniffly nose and we got a bit of a scratchy throat and you get the antibiotic but it's actually a viral infection. Mm-hmm. And antibiotics don't work on viruses. But, you know, you know, Susie's crying and she's got a fever and it's like, I'm not leaving here till I get a bloody pill bottle. Mm-hmm. So we go home with it. That's first number mistake is that it was a misdiagnosis and there was a paper published last year on U.S. hospitals, which are you know some of the best in the world. 56% of all antibiotics were misprescribed uh, mm-hmm. in the paper published last year or published in
1: 2021. And on that point, part of it, um, not to interject, but mm-hmm. the... Are used to screen sometimes for that reason. So if they don't, if the identifying if it's bacterial or viral is tricky still today, mm-hmm. and so giving an antibiotic is pretty easy to answer that question. You know, mm. um, if they it get better, work. Yeah. it was antibiotic or viral took care of itself. If it's not, then it's viral. Yeah. And so right,
0: oh. right. So that's good. Second, so that's your first mistake is it was misprescribed. Second mistake is that is that mom or dad at home didn't have the child finish the course of antibiotics. So what that did is, you only gave it for two days and you're supposed to have given it for seven days or five. And um, so you killed all the weak bacteria immediately and maybe a whole bunch of non-target populations too. You killed the most sensitive ones immediately. The ones that were stronger and more resilient got to survive. So they're the ones that repopulate. So over and over and over you do this millions of times with people and populations. You keep you keep killing off the more fragile bacteria and you and you allow all the stronger ones to survive. And now you're mm. and now you're accelerating through pressure the stronger mm. pathogens and so you're pushing this adaptation faster. So this is a big this is a big problem with on the human side. Um, and then on the animal side, you know, which of course we, you know, we, we mentioned, but there's an awful lot of antibiotics used in animal agriculture for two reasons. One was for treating illness, you know, like cows get mastitis, an infection of their udder, incredibly painful and, and, and certain forms of it can kill cows like E. coli mastitis. But, um, so we have to treat it, you know, that's our responsibility to the cow or the pig or chicken. Um. And so we do treat it with a veterinarian and and uh, and hopefully you know that that's there's a good outcome whatever but there is there has been another use of antibiotics um, they discovered that using it at what we call a sub therapeutic level a very low dose level like a baby aspirin you know compared to a regular aspirin mm-hmm. but a very low dose and you feed it to the cattle or the or the pigs every day every day every day they they grow better. This is called mm-hmm. subtherapeutic antibiotic use, and and as uh, a growth promotant, and um, this was be and it's still used widely in the world, like in countries like China, and then and then in, 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 in um, developing. Well, China China uses more than probably like half the drugs in the world for animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Just China, really? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So this for this pigs, subparath- mostly.
2: therapeutic is uh-huh. for promoting growth,
0: not yeah, not right, for Jack. fighting Exactly. Nothing to do with directly fighting disease, but just
2: like a byproduct of they found yeah. out that they grow better from giving they them.
1: They do. Uh, grow grow more better, faster, more efficient. Yeah. Could be through bacteria manipulation or if there was just sub therapeutic, subclinical things that aren't showing up. As an oh, illness, sure. but are at a low level an illness that we're taking care of that would have been hindering the animal
2: is that still practiced here in the States?
1: well
0: very Orange. i think in the u s we're not not allowed to do it anymore um because of this whole reason of you know it's a it's a i think it's fair enough too it's a it's like when you look at c- critical control points this is a way to put you know huge pressure on on pathogens in in a population. Mm-hmm. Like all the time, so I don't think it's smart and and it's a good thing. it's been it's pretty it's been revoked here for um as far as I understand.
1: There's um, a um, directive that came in two thousand and fifteen called the veterinary um VFD Veterinary Feed Directive. Mm-hmm. And so that is where it takes what we call these medically important antibiotics, mm-hmm. ones that have human implications that are also fed to livestock. And you need vets to sign off and write a script in order to use those. Um, mm-hmm. So they and the one of the biggest things they did was they had to relabel all of these products um, that were that had growth promoting claims on them. Now none of them will have none of these antibiotics will have these growth promoting claims anymore, and they can only be fed with the um, the stamp of a of a vet. I'm um, mm. signing off that they can be used, but there are still you know some over overuse of that, but this concept it's in general it's good um to do this because if we aren't reinvesting like we talked about before and we're using these human important antibiotics in livestock um that only speeds up the process of this resistance yeah. but in it's for sure uh an area that's going to continue to be um cracked down on more and more in the in the u.s i, th- I think they even have some, some funny punishments for if you get caught doing you know feeding mm-hmm. it or if you end up having um having antibiotics with that weren't following the withdrawal times or something like that, and it shows up in the meat, you get your your farm's name gets published or your name gets published on this it's site. shameless. And, um, mm-hmm. Kind of get shamed. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know how oh. often that actually happens. I just know it's in the, in the write-up we, of it. Should but. we put
2: the site up on the description? <laughs> you Shame. yeah, Shame.
1: But it's an interesting, interesting idea because it there are, when we think of antibiotics, we just think of only ones that affect yeah. human, we think of AnabXL as the same, maybe, but, but there are not. ones that are used only for livestock too that aren't important to humans. And yeah. so using those doesn't seem to have a negative no.
2: why are they not important to humans? Is it that they're just currently not important or are they? The they mode of action be? doesn't oh,
1: okay. benefit would be a one main So Ionophores mm-hmm. would be a, a big one. Um, be, they mean, have
0: critically important
1: and medically important, and there's different.
0: Europe has a different standard, and we have one too. And then there's like, um, you know, common use or sort of mm-hmm. where both human and animals can, you know, can be used. And they're sort of the older drugs mostly. They want to reserve they're like, like the big hitters, uh, for human use now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and fair enough, critically important. And there's only a few of them, and even you know, some of them they're there of um well this is a this is a real problem say you come out with a a real a really novel drug that's highly effective on some of these real nasty staffs you mm-hmm. know like the flesh eating staff disease i mean bacteria and streps and um but you know i know in traveling spending time in china as example you know we had vancomycin you know i think that came on the market in the 80s and that was like you know, super drug because it could knock out all these, you know, s- serious bacteria. Um, colistin is another one. You know, super yeah. drug. Mm-hmm. But you know, um the cephalosporins, you know, super um, powerful, uh as example. But then, uh, you know, I in China, you know, here they are feeding it to animals, even though it's. Not supposed to be, you know, but they're feeding it, using it as a growth promotant, and, I mean, it's hard to police this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, in China, the the official data says they use about 45% of the world's drugs on animals, mostly for pigs. Um, But, you know, there are reports of them using almost 100% of the the known world's, you know, antibiotic use. So it could be, you know... (laughs) 90 to 100% more. Wow. Um, So it's hard to know what they're using. That's my point. It's like here in the US, as an example, we use 7% of the veterinary drugs of the world. Um, And the data is very accurate, you know. And in Europe, the same, something similar, very accurate data. But my point is in the. (laughs) And it's policeable here. And it's policeable here. But in the, you know, China is the Wild West. Yeah. Can't and quite
2: trust their numbers, huh? No,
0: that's the problem, you know. So, so this, so education is huge, you know. Ultimately, the, they, but the, you know, they don't. This is a big problem, the education piece, because if if the drugs are available, you know, just you can just buy them without a vet script in 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 a in mm-hmm. Chinese province to feed your pigs, and there's and you don't know of any negative consequence to it. Like you've never heard of antibiotic resistance. All you know is you need your pigs to be healthy and grow faster, and um, and then they have these black market chemical, you know, pharmaceutical companies they're making, pumping them out. Um, same is happening in India too. But um, and then so you have no, there's no, there's no mechanism to stop this. Mm-hmm. You know, this why a, wouldn't they do it? Right? Why wouldn't you do it when when you need when every pig is valuable? You know? Yeah. So this is the other thing. There's a there's an there's an intense focus on the U.S. and in Europe, and mm-hmm. of course New Zealand, Australia. That you know for their control of antibiotics, and that's good. I mean, okay, this is a good thing to be looking at, you know. And um, but 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 what we got to remember is there's a big piece of the world that that is going to behave indifferently. Not going to play know. by the rules, right? Is exactly. And then I think you mentioned Tommy. These Antibiotic resistant genes, you know that the 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 bacteria have developed, travel the world. Yeah, Uh, they travel with us, inside us, on us, uh, on airplanes around Mm. the world. I mean, it's a Mm. they're highly transportable. You know,
2: so it's not like what it's just happening in China. They do their own thing, just just
1: their problem. Yeah, it's going to be everyone's problem. Yeah, if we do our job here, when Mm -hmm. I think the the stat is since 2015 when this came out, there's maybe. 40% fewer, 30% fewer antibiotics being used in the U.S., Mm -hmm. that's great. But if everyone else is following the rules, you know, it ends up being a quite minuscule impact on the overall big picture.
2: It's Mm -hmm. a similar story to what you hear with um, like emissions or, you know, it's like we're so efficient in comparison, but (laughs) we also produce like such a small amount or not such a small amount but yes there's huge swaths of the world that are not even trying to address it that um are producing you know way more and similar story here with the antibiotic and in some
1: regards that you know these developing countries they should have access to get these we i think we should bring it back up again there's a there are really good things about antibiotics yeah you know it's it's, it's it's good to give things that are sick things that make them better you know it's the right thing to do and if it helps these people produce food right. at a higher rate that lifts them out of poverty. Who's to say that's wrong? I was going to say, think, it's, you know.
2: it's tough for, here we are, you know, we've reaped the benefits. Mm-hmm. Um yes. You know, again, like to make the analogy to energy, we've become rich off of um, fossil fuels. And then, you know, mm-hmm. now we're to turn around and only to tell the developing world that they can't do the same. Right. You know, we've reaped the benefits of antibiotic use. And then, yeah, it's a tough spot to be in it's, if you're the the developing world.
0: I right? know. I think this this is so good, you know, because it's so important. The um, the we have to keep developing obviously compounds. We have a responsibility to the animals to keep them healthy. But there's so much can be done with management, you know, outside of antibiotics. And Europe mm. has led the way on this, like Denmark and the Netherlands. I could signal out as being like world leaders in living without antibiotics and strategies for, you know, for managing pathogens um, through exclusion and through competition. And they call prebiotics, probiotics, Mm -hmm. using acidifiers in the gut to change. And um, so very clever nutritional strategies and then management, you know, because a lot of bacteria are opportunistic. What do you Uh, mean by management? Oh, how you manage your animals. Okay. Their environment, uh, low stress, uh, comfort, got um, it. temperature, just everything, air quality—like catch like, yeah, there's a hundred things in management that can make okay. a massive difference mm-hmm. to um, your health of your. Because they're being opportunistic. If you have an immune suppression event, well, just think about it. Everyone listening will know. If you got caught in the rain, um, cold as hell, you know, and got wet and soaked and got chilled. It's very common, like two days later and the next day, you know, you'll have a cough. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got a cold. And it's because your body got um, immune suppressed by dealing with this um, environmental challenge to your, thermal, you know, challenge as example. It, It reduced your immune competence. So then opportunistic pathogens... That are in you or exposed to you get the can take advantage of it and this happens with animals that we're farming all the time you know they get in trouble through through bad air qual air quality is huge um temperature um stress physiological stress stress psychological stress even can trigger health events. So we manage animals so much better; we can reduce our need for antibiotics, like,
1: like it's staggering. And so, kind of to piggyback off of that, the mm-hmm. the sub therapeutic dose feeding of antibiotics that would cover up a lot of poor management, management things. That's right. So sure. if you pull that away, exactly, you got way be to make that manages. up again. Or if you antibiotics cost money, and so once people realize and start um understanding you know that management is a quick way to make up um and actually become more profitable without having to spend it on the antibiotics. Mm-hmm. That has kind of pulled back the need as well for maybe using which the is sub-therapy very work.
2: motivating cuz ultimately yeah. like if it's not going to they still have to make money like that's going to be the most motivating thing in the end in many yeah. so ways. Yeah, so there's for reasons the, um, for individual producer.
0: Mhm. Yeah. And so there's there's some things like that are um, are, are going to be real helpful, you know, and then non non antibiotic interventions as we mentioned um, are, are 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 becoming main practices in, in different um, and mm-hmm. then you can share that education now better than ever before. What you know, is it? Internet um, and and mobile.
2: What's a non antibiotic intervention? Like Did we talk about that? Probiotic.
0: Or? Oh, okay, um, gotcha. Could be one. Yeah, like uh, that's a, using a another a beneficial bacteria, maybe like a lactobacillus or something. Mm-hmm. But there's others like acidifiers, so you change the pH of the gut, and then some bacteria are very sensitive to that, and they and that so that you know kills them or provides an environment where they can't reproduce. Mm-hmm. There's a non-antibiotic intervention as an example hmm mm-hmm. And then there's oh, there's a lot of feed additives now being developed to um from herbal extracts and natural plant extracts that can like oregano and oh there's others I can't I'm not, I just don't know them off
1: the top of my head, but that's you know, a big area of interest going forward. Um kind of back to that point about is it more or less the concept of is it a band-aid approach or not? But Replacing antibiotics with non-antibiotics to cover some of what the antibiotic was doing is a is going to continue being a, a kind of the maybe the next frontier of mm-hmm. um, of research or at least one of them. A lot of that comes down to understanding the microbiome more, which is mm-hmm. still, but we're still going to need
0: done? powerful antibiotics. Yes. like there's no getting around it. So we we got to have an emphasis on new, better uh, antibiotics and and never stop. And never stop in the pursuit of them because you can't you know they're going to adapt no matter what so we need to adapt our strategy i mean we need to keep innovating is there talk
2: of how to we already covered on the reason why it's not happening Mm -hmm. the you know it's not financially viable um and regulatory reasons is there talk uh in a significant way of addressing that that kink in the um chain you know that that people aren't developing new antibiotics for that reason?
1: I think that's the disconnect. You know, people in public don't like to, the thought of antibiotics being used okay. in agriculture. Showing that a feasible solution or maybe the solution is to invest more in it, um, that, that part's not as clear yet. And so all these reasons to go away from antibiotics sound more appealing at the sure. moment. And so bridging that gap, I think, is is the challenge. And I think that's ultimately part of why we wanted to have this conversation is to shed light that the history of antibiotics is one, it's fascinating, but two, it's, there's a real needle mover in terms of yeah, what oh. like all of the good that comes from it. And so shying away from those technologies is, it might not be the, the it well, it isn't the best approach. Yeah. You know, it's understanding the effects of them is, is great and the side effects and the antibiotic resistance that needs to be recognized. But um, you know, completely going away from antibiotics also shouldn't be the goal.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's interesting what you just said, that you can, on the one hand, recognize and appreciate all the good that's come from it and recognize that there is an issue here with how it's currently being managed and um, and that they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can say that there's going to be some challenges with how we've done it, but we also need to recognize these are really powerful tools that we should be continuing to use and, and get better at
1: you brought it up at the beginning, you know, that never ever programs the no antibiotics ever. Um, if the back, if it's not being backfilled with innovation, that is just a slow bleed and it's not a, that's not a helpful solution. And so hearing that an animal didn't receive antibiotics or did to us, I know that doesn't make a difference on if we would purchase that food or not, because we know that food is safe and that antibiotics provide a good service. But if we're just going to you know a lot of people do select their food to if it had no antibiotics ever on it they would that would be a compelling sales pitch for them mm-hmm. and i think i don't know how it happens but getting that mindset a little bit shifted um it needs to happen sooner or later otherwise it's just going to yeah. continue down the same yeah. path
0: well no antibiotics ever never is also an ethical issue yeah like, yeah okay you might you might feel good cuz oh uh, this animal, this meat, never had an antibiotic in its whole life. But what about all that? What about that? Its cohorts, its brothers and sisters, that you know, that got or got sick, you know, and needed an antibiotic to to get them well. But because they're being raised under this no antibiotic never, there were those animals just left to suffer. But
2: just to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. I think the way that these operations work is mm-hmm. that. They do, a lot of times, they do treat them with antibiotics, but then they just take them out of that marketing channel. They go to conventional. So it's not so much that they're withholding care. It's just that if they treat them, which they should responsibility, then they're no longer able
1: to market it as a never, ever. To play devil's advocate. That's correct. (laughs) But uh, then play it again. There's incentive to not recognize, a, correct, um, you know that something like, is wrong, and see if the animal can get through it on its own, yes. because there's a premium to be fetched by having no antibiotic. Mm-hmm.
0: And it f- and it absolutely. also
1: con- it also,
0: you know, suggests in a, in an overt way to the consumer that you know using antibiotics in animals is bad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. It's, I hope we've explained that it's a much more nuanced. You know, yep. there is no antibiotics in our meat or like the. You know, per the FDA, there's a withdrawal period on all meat and milk. And so the residuals are almost, you know, they're near zero, you know, and certainly they've been proven to be safe. So we shouldn't be afraid of having eating meat, even if the turkey, you know, was given an antibiotic for, for the chicken or whatever. Or just don't eat turkey. Yeah, just right. Just eat beef. (laughs) (laughs) So that's number one. The other thing too is there's there's reason for optimism, and like we're so innovative as a species, humans. You know, ingenuity. We we can we can we can continue to win this if we apply our ingenuity. So on the cost side, Tommy and you you know was talking about the cost of bringing a new uh, antibiotic to market. Well, there's a way. You know, using technology, we can speed that up. Like I came across a couple of papers in the last two years where we've used AI, machine learning, you know, the oh. power of computers. So mm-hmm. we would have to do, you know, all this work in the labs, you know, benchtop work and, and culture and chemistry, medicinal chemistry. But now they they can feed it into a computer, you know, with uh, and using uh, AI learning. Um, and they and they, I think it was a year ago or two years ago, they spit it out uh, at MIT a, a compound, completely new antibiotic called helicin that um that the you know that the AI intelligence of the computer did in you know came up with in hours novel wow. novel chemistry versus years. So you think about the cost reduction of of having this machine learning, how many different compounds can it could it build you know in a in a in a in like a in a like a three d sense you know mm-hmm. for in a very elaborate molecule it can build um in in a very quick order and then there's another paper I read on game theory applying you know like very complex problems. And having the computer learn how to solve it towards a certain goal, like how to de- beat how to beat the defense system of a strep, particular strep bacteria. So we know the defense systems that it has, and now you put game theory computing power to it um, to find its weak. and And there has been some success. I read uh, a paper published where they they came up with another another novel compound using game theory. Wow. So you know we're so ingenious as a species, people. Uh, I feel I feel if we're if we have the motivation to pursue this aggressively, we can, you know, we can do m- incredible things. There's no reason why we can't have another Fleming mm-hmm. Domac moment. You know, it's
2: I'd rather example. bank
1: on that.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. That's well, there's an example approach. of both of those examples of solutions or potential solutions coming in forms of mm-hmm. technology that you could never even fathom, you know, when you were st- years ago, like AI, artificial uh-huh. intelligence. If you were right. ten <laughs> years ago or whatever this timeline is, uh, twenty, let's say, to give a make it safe. Yep. But you wouldn't have even be able to no. consider that in it's the like, game. was like Lumenho yeah. oh, looking robot. in
0: his yeah looking in his his polished glass. It was like. So that moment again, you could never imagine AI, what the hell? Computing power that could do such a thing?
1: I think, well, you love the topic of CRISPR, Cas9, but there's also some potential for CRISPR here. Huge, huge potential. Yeah, back to that um, in vitro concept and the duality of these these bugs. They exhibit certain properties under this set of... um, environmental Mm -hmm. what do you call it um, situations and then different ones over here if you can figure out how to genetically turn on the beneficial ones when you want them on CRISPR has a role to play there is my understanding too and so figuring out when these genes need to be flipped on and which ones do um, you know that's another area that CRISPR is that's a new technology Mm -hmm. that 10 years ago we wouldn't have known anything about that either and that also might have some um, antibiotic help coming forward in the future with that one. Well, I think for sure. CRISPR
0: does do does everyone know what CRISPR is?
1: Everyone in this room? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was the quick 1-hour version of CRISPR, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, we'll do it.
0: But CRISPR is um you know the the acronym CRISPR is clustered regularly interspaced palindromic repeats. <laughs> like say that twenty times over but <laughs> what a, it's like it's incredible uh uh breakthrough that they found japanese researchers and then and then University of california Davis, i think Jennifer dudner and a french uh collaborator have 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 uh bought it into the into into use in the world it's a tool, a gene editing tool. But it comes, like, this is how great the story is. It comes all the way back to bacteria. It's the bacteria's immune system. CRISPR is a big part of their immune uh, system of a bacteria for fighting viruses. Because they've been at war with viruses for a billion years. Mm -hmm. And what CRISPR does is it allows to uh, take a snippet of the virus and incorporate it into its, um, like, memory bank, if you will. So... So now it can recognize that virus whenever it's invaded by... And it, and as that bacteria multiplies, like they multiply so fast, right? I don't know, like on a log scale, uh-huh. you start with two or one and you end up with like a trillion, like seven minutes later. <laughs> but all of the ones that replicate out of, out of that bacteria have that built-in reference immunity to that virus so mm-hmm. so it's a it's a gene cutting tool that now we've been able to harness so we can go in and we're already doing so much crisper work now um and you can turn off genes by cutting them out and you can also insert good genes in by Cutting and pasting them in. So it's a bit like on your Word document. You could search for a word, cut it, and paste it, you know, or replace it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very similar. Mm-hmm. And so, for in our fight against antibiotics, uh, there's another really great research paper, I think, came out in the last maybe year. I think we looked at um, turning the bacteria um, on itself to make them commit suicide. <laughs> <laughs> So you turn, you turn them, you trick them into producing a toxin that'll kill themselves wow. by editing, gene editing in this, um, the sequence. So, mm. so we're scratching the surface on what we, on what we can do with novel. See, that wouldn't be an antibiotic then yeah. either, yep. but it's a, but yep. it's a certainly a bactericidal approach, yeah. um, that's novel and. And maybe very hard to build resistance to. So, Mm. very cool.
1: It is. A good, uh, well, it's just another good example of why investing in new technologies, you know, banking on human ingenuity typically Mm. seems to be the right way to go. Um, It's not to say that there aren't these concerns that we've talked about with antibiotics and resistance and things like that, but I, I would just say, I guess, that it seems that if the general take on antibiotics is a little bit too scared at the moment. Sure. Um, You know, there are some reasons for pause, but there's also all of the good that has come from it. And Mm -hmm.
2: on pause without reinvesting is, is ultimately going to be no better
0: than we need, we need to be, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it all up maybe, but yeah. um, Yeah. It's been a, been a long and arduous you know epic trail that we've traveled as a human species you know Mm -hmm. and just in recent it's just like in the this recent blink of a that we've enjoyed this incredible prosperity and health and longevity you know like things have never ever ever been so good And it's just happened in the last hundred years, you know, like it's unbelievable. If you got shot
1: with a bow and arrow today,
0: you wouldn't need to have your leg cut off. Right. Gus would still be riding. He wouldn't be hobbled. Some say he's still out there. (laughs) That was Jeremiah Johnson. (laughs) But yeah, your (laughs) point is taken.
1: Yeah, Jeremiah's for the next episode. Oh
0: yeah, we've got to talk about Liver eating Johnson.
1: How do you get that name?
0: (laughs) Yeah, boy, that's another (laughs) podcast. (laughs) But, um, anyway, so here we are, and we do have challenges. The good news is we're you know we're uh, we're acting on them, like the world, um, and all the way down to the individual government bodies, but all the way down to the local veterinarian doctors and human health, veterinarians, farmers. like the education level is uh, an awareness is very high now and getting higher. So we can be more judicial and prudent and targeted. Mm-hmm. Um so and that, that that means responsibility. Um and and but then we also we gotta manage the ethic, our responsibility to the animals as mm-hmm. farmers and producers. And then and then and and safety for our consumer as well. Mm-hmm. Um and then but then we gotta have this sort of um I think we've got to have this optimism and aggressive pursuit of of more ingenious you know we, as, as, a, as a people, as a nation, as a we're going we, we have this we must invest more on on new on new strategies, new compounds, novel ways to um, to to fight this eternal war. like yeah. the bacteria are never going away. We will be fighting them forever. You know, and if 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 Elon gets Mars colonized, we'll get up there and we'll find we'll be fighting frickin' bacteria on Mars. <laughs> it's never going to end. You know, those bastards will travel with us. Yeah, and um, so we're in the eternal struggle, and and uh, and we can win it.
2: There we go.
1: I think that's a good place to end. We can win. Yeah. it? Yeah, right. got it. Love Let's it. Good on you. Cheers.